Hello, everyone. I hope you're all keeping well. My name is Natalie Turvey. I'm president and executive director of the Canadian Journalism Foundation, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's special event and our final webcast of 2021, Behind the Scenes, an inside look at the Globe and Mail's award-winning investigations. Before we get to our program, I would like to take a moment to thank you for joining us today on Giving Tuesday. None of the CJF's work is possible without the help of our donors and sponsors. Your contributions go a long way in supporting CJF programs, including fellowships for emerging Black and Indigenous journalists, awards for excellence in journalism, research and education, and this speaker series featuring journalism thought leaders and important conversations on the issues of our time. If you would like to support Canadian journalism this Giving Tuesday, you can donate now or anytime on the CJF website. We are so grateful for your support of our mission. And now on to our program. The CJF is honored to partner with the Globe and Mail on today's event. The foundation has a strong tradition of collaboration with the Globe, including a successful investigative journalism fellowship that ran for four years and brought emerging talent to the Globe's newsroom to pursue a year-long investigative journalism project under the guidance of some of the country's best reporters and editors. And today we have the unique opportunity to be joined by some of the those reporters who mentored and worked alongside our fellows for an in-depth look at excellence in investigative journalism, from pitches to research and cultivating sources, navigating obstacles, and the resulting impact of their work for the good of the Canadian public. It is my pleasure to welcome Renata D'Alessio, Head of Investigations at the Globe and Mail, to share a few words about the Globe's commitment to journalism that matters. Thank you, Natalie. Early in my reporting career, after my last semester of university, I hit the road for a reporting contract in Albuquerque. The experience was an eye-opening introduction into the massive gulf in access to information between the US and Canada. In Albuquerque, I was able to obtain police investigative reports simply by walking into a station and asking for them. That doesn't happen in Canada. Government officials spoke freely to the media. No one cited privacy as the reason to decline to comment. My experience in New Mexico helped me to understand why investigative journalism is so much tougher here. It takes great fortitude, determination, and a lot of time to break through the many barriers to information. The Globe does this daily through our investigative and data teams and in our business, political, and foreign coverage. Investigative journalism is a part of our culture, and the work of Globe journalists has led to meaningful change. We're fortunate to have three of our best join us today to take us behind the scenes of their remarkable stories. Thank you to Natalie and the CJF for organizing today's panel. Thank you, Renata. A reminder to everyone that our discussion today is an hour long and you can still submit questions for our speakers at any time via the tab on your screen. And if you'd like to tweet about today's conversation, our hashtag is journalism matters. I'm delighted to welcome three award-winning Globe and Mail investigative journalists to our virtual stage today. Tom Cardoso, Grant Robertson, and Chen Wang join us from Toronto. They're in conversation with David Mackay, veteran investigative journalist and deputy managing editor of Canada's National Observer, who joins us from Ottawa. We are honored to have them on our stage today. David, over to you. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for ever since I was invited, so thanks for the invitation, because these are 
journalists whose uh, whose work that I have I've read, I've thought about, um, I've talked about in my in my journalism classes at uh, Carleton, at Ryerson, at the University of King's College, and will be talking about at UBC uh, this winter. Um, and so all my journalists, uh, all my students know about uh, the tremendous work that you folks have done and will continue to do. Um, you know, the hashtag is really important, journalism matters. Um, and this is journalism that, that matters at a time when journalism is being questioned. Um, we are being questioned about our methods. We're being questioned about our reliability, about whether or not we are relevant anymore, about whether or not anyone's reading us. And I think that after this conversation, you will hopefully be inspired um, in addition to the inf great information that you'll be getting. So uh, not too much more from me. I want to get to these guys to talk about uh, uh, what they've done, how they've done it. And what I've also asked them to do is to kind of think about tips that they want to pass on to, uh, to the folks who are joining us here and the folks who will be uh, um, taking in this recording um, at, at, at a later date, because part of this is inspiration. Um, and it's, it's inspiration that comes from knowing that you are using the tools that some of the best in the business are using. So I've asked them to, to put together a, a, a bit of a tip sheet um, that they can dispense at any point during this discussion. So without further ado, uh, I'm going to start with you, Grant, um, in large part because now we are dealing with another variant, the, the Omicron. Um, we are in the middle of a pandemic. I don't know when we're going to get out. Um, but your work, your excellent work, really had a lot to do with the pandemic, pandemic preparedness and so on. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for having me. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the variant because, you know, what I'm seeing happen now, I think, is very different than what we saw in early 2020 um, in, in terms of how Canada responded back then to, to the, some of the things we're doing now. Um, so the work I did um, reporting on the pandemic um, really uh, it began with one question, um, which is what what was going wrong with our pandemic response? Why wasn't this going better? Um, and you really had to sort of it, it began with looking back at SARS, which was you know a uniquely Canadian problem. Um, you know, just after the, the turn of the century, and forty four people died, and there was a lot of decisions made back then to ensure this wouldn't happen again. And you sort of had to look back and say, okay, those 44 people should not have died in vain. Um, there were systems put in place to prepare for the next one, to prepare for the big one. So what's going on? We could see the problems in early 2020 happening, long-term care, you know, migrant workers, healthcare workers, frontline, everything. Um, so it began with that one question, and really the the investigation. Just to quickly summarize it, it spanned three, I think, three major stories. The first one in in May of 2020 looked at uh, essentially just what were our pandemic preparedness plans, and why weren't they followed? And that one, it was it was a big undertaking, but it was a fairly easy story to to begin on because those are all public documents. So you pull you pull the pandemic plans and you start going through them. And you compare what's happening to what should have happened. And that really opened up, I think, a, a door to bigger stories that we did not expect. Uh, after we did that story, uh, we started getting information coming out of the public health department. And one of the most damning things that I'd heard is somebody said, um, somebody called me up and said, we had a 
pandemic uh, early warning system. It was staffed by you know a dozen or so very sophisticated people, and it had a great reputation globally for tracking H1N1. It was one of the big reasons H1N1 didn't become a problem, and it was it was leaned on heavily by Africa to track and detect Ebola outbreaks. Sometimes we were detecting Ebola outbreaks before they were being detected in Africa. That's how good this thing was. And I was amazed. I said, great. Well, you know, what happened to it? Where is it? What's it doing right now? And they said it, it, they shut it down, or they they basically shut down most of its operations and 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 transitioned its work into other areas. And this happened less than a year before the pandemic. And it was one of those moments where people are telling you information and you just don't believe it. It just sounds so apocryphal. And so that comprised the second element of the investigation. And then the the last leg of it that ran, I think, in December, was a, a story looking at how people inside public health had warned for the past couple of years that Canada wasn't ready if a big pandemic hit. And those messages were trying to be pushed up the chain of command and they were being blocked. And I think the most disturbing revelation from that one was that um, we had actually built a new pandemic preparedness plan and we hadn't practiced it. It sat on the shelf in about 2018 and we never exercised it, which they're required to do. And uh, and that was... Um, that was another one where it, it started to paint a picture of why when when COVID hit in 2020, we looked like we were constantly scrambling. What were some of the key records you used? Uh, for the first story, it was simply, let's pull all the pandemic preparedness plans. Uh, and then after that, um, you know, so you, you're, you're having people reach out to you with information. And it's a lot of off-the-record information. The problem there is, you know, people need to protect their jobs, and people have livelihoods and families. And, you know, there's a lot of people that I spoke to that were speaking because they believe this information needed to be out in the public sphere. It, it shouldn't be hidden inside government because, you know, government doesn't want to be blamed for problems. So they're speaking out. I, I really admire these people's motives for doing it. Uh, the challenge as a journalist is to take that information and say, how can I get this on record? And so then you you need to take the information you've been um, given and then whether it's through access to information requests or branching out and talking to other sources and piecing together on the record information. You know, so you talk about records and documents. Um, that was really the task. Mm -hmm. And and I'm asking, uh, I will ask all of, all of you this right off the bat because I've got a feeble memory and I know I, for, I will forget and I'll beat myself up forever. But in terms of tips... If you had, say, five or six tips that you could pass along to all of us, what would they be? Do you want my five right now? Yeah, yeah. Great. Um, yeah, well, you know, I, I right off the top, I would say uh, an investigation starts with a simple question all the time. Um, you know, the investigations can, can seem complex. You know, I had people say to me afterwards, you know, the, the pandemic early warning system was called GFIN. It's an acronym. It was a very arcane thing in a remote part of the government. People said, well, you know, how did that investigation um, lead to GFIN? Nobody knew it existed. And, but it really began with a simple question, what went wrong here? And so that's, that's my first tip. Start with a simple question and keep an open mind because you don't know where that question is going to lead. Um, number two is re-ask questions. Go back. So I, one, of the, one of the, you know, the great moments of this investigation, I think, was... Um, when I had pieced together information about that this this department had been sort of silenced within government, 
I posed the question to the department, to the to the public relations officers, and said, "Okay, I need to know why this has been effectively shut down." The answer that came back was, "It hasn't." And so, as a reporter, my job then becomes go out and get more information, verify it three, four times over. And once you can do that, you go back and you re-ask the question. And once they knew, one of the things we did is we got the database that showed that this alert system had alerted, you know, you know, for the past decade, you know, thousands of times, and then it stopped in May 2019. It was you could not debate it once you saw this database. So I went back to the government, I re-asked the question, and they said, oh, well, the answer that came back was, well, you know, it, it hasn't been shut down, it just doesn't work anymore, was, was essentially, which is a hilarious answer. And, uh, and it told you that they were obfuscating, it told you that, okay, now they're not being honest about the answers, and a complete confidence saying that. They tried to obfuscate that answer. And at that point, you know you're working on a real investigation because the information is being prevented. Um, third tip is um, have a plan to protect your sources. Um, you know, if whistleblowers, they, they only work if we can protect them. Uh, the system only works. So, so have a plan to ensure that these people aren't going to be exposed or because um, I've seen it with companies and I saw it with the government in this case within the department, people were under suspicion and, and there, there was pressure put on people and I know it happened. And, uh, and so you have to have a plan to make sure that uh, people who are bringing out public information who, that really, really matters um, are protected. Um, and uh, number four, real quick, um, filter out agendas. Um, when you talk to people for any investigation, you're going to get people coming from all sides with different agendas. That's okay. Everybody has an agenda. Um, you know, in the story, I was talking to a lot of public health people. I was talking to a lot of people in the uh, Canada security complex. You know, people who, who talk about national security because this is a national security issue. Those people all have different viewpoints. And, you know, some people you're talking, they just they may not like their, you know, who their boss is. And, you know, so <laughs> you, know, you have to be able to filter out where they're coming from and just just get to the information that's being conveyed. And my last tip um, would be um, I think I would um, when you when you look at access to information requests, uh, one thing I really learned from this was. Um, use the information people are, are giving you. And, you know, a lot of times when we do access to information requests, you put them in cold. It's just give me the documents on this subject. But one of the things I was taught on this one was there's people inside these departments that know which documents exist and where they exist. So a lot of times as journalists, we get told, well, that information can't be found. That document doesn't exist. On this one, there were a few documents I request where, requested where I knew exactly the email I needed, exactly the document number I needed. And what it told me is on future investigations that I really want to speak to the people who know where the documents live, you know, even if those people need to uh, be protected. So that's my thoughts. Great, great. Well, thanks a lot, Grant. Okay, Chen, I'm going to come to you. Um, you the, the thing I really admired about, about the piece that you, the stories that you did with Robin, is that you dug into records that had been around seemingly forever, sunshine lists, executive salaries. I don't know how many classes I've used these to, to stress the point that we have to get beyond just we have to get beyond the obvious, right? The obvious is, yes, we know that certain CEOs make a million plus. Okay, fine. But what else can we do with that? And you were able to use that to really, I think, dig and probe and ask some very important questions about executive compensation and fairness. So can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so I will circle back to this, but probably I can start with introducing myself because I come from a different team than Grant and Tom. Um, so that, and I, Tom and I used to be in the same team, so he, he can speak for both, but like <laughs> I come from, uh, I joined the Globe like 3.5 years ago as a data journalist. So I'm at this department called Visual Journalism Department. Uh, so we're in editorial, but like we're a group of data people like me, developers, designers, photographers, um, like, so I had this difficult time identifying myself as a, a journalist or not. Um, and I got this question a lot, like, do, are you a journalist or are you a supporting role, like analyst or something like that? So I, I think it matters like how you identify yourself, not like the, the kind of work you do. So my daily work is like acquiring data, analyzing data, um, and work with reporters, editors to, to report out the stories and present the stories. And back to, um, so I have um, opportunities to work on like this long-term investigative work, um, as well as some short-term, like quick turnaround stories, daily stories, especially during the pandemic that everything goes so quick. Um, so back to uh, the project I'm going to talk about, which is Power Gap. Um, so uh, when I joined the project, uh, the story already started like several months already. So um, like we were started a pilot analysis for this project. So, so Robin, the closer of like also the lead reporter of this project, she was working on the unfunded uh, project, which is also, I think a lot of people know it. Um, and near the end of the project, she was thinking like, what's the next big thing to do? Um, and she wanted to move on to something. Um, so Unfunded was about like how police handled uh, sexual thoughts uh, in, in Canada. Like she's thinking about something broader pro uh, project about the gender equality. Um, so, um, so like, as you mentioned, like a sunshine list attracted her attention that is there anything we can do about this public data to analyze, to examine the um, women's position in Canadian workplace. Um, and uh, um, we don't want to just focus on the top jobs, the, the highest paid people, uh, but we also want to look into like um, the trajectories uh, within each organization because like there's some big numbers available, like uh, for example, stats can say uh, like women paid a certain percent less than men. But that's an aggregate big number, but you won't really know if the person next to me with the same, same job title paid the same as me or not. Is my organization paying the same as the, uh, the other organization? Um, and, uh, you know, like the um, salary is a separate in, in a lot of, in most places. So we had to rely on, rely on this like public uh, sector salary to do this analysis. Um, and when I joined this project, we were trying to, uh, to do some pilot analysis to test this hypothesis. Uh, because if people are familiar with the project, we apply this analysis uh, across the country in different provinces, in different sectors. So we know like there's a salary gap there, but is this available everywhere? We don't want like start like sending requests to everyone and uh, and, and find out like, oh, okay, like it's only concentrated in, uh, in one province or one sector. So we tested some the idea on three provinces, uh, which had this public 
uh, disclosure available on their website, compiled data set. So it's Ontario, um, BC Alberta? funded. Alberta? Yeah, I think three of them. So like, and we find, so there is a still a salary gap. The bigger question is there is a extensive lack of women in those decision making. So that's when we shifted our focus from the salary to a little bit to the, the power gap, like the representation of women. So in our final project, we we dug into like both the salary, but also like what's the representation uh, at the top, what's the representation from the bottom salary band to uh, to the top salary band. And when I'm saying bottom salary bands, it's still like above this 100K threshold. So it's still pretty high, uh, high salary, but like, Again, this is a limitation to the data available, like only the people making uh, this much money are, are um, available there. So another thing I want to mention, like, uh, like we only have public sector as part of the project. So we, we try to, uh, um, to include the other work, uh, part of the workplace as well. So in our first installment, uh, we also like uh, took a look at the TSX composite index companies, even though it's only uh, like 200 companies, I think, but like that's the best data we were able to get. And also um, you can see like my talk is more on the data part of it, but there's a lot of work, investigative work by by, by Robin, by Tavia Grant, um, by Christine Doby, uh, who looked into law firms, uh, private companies in between like this data-driven uh, stories. So, um, yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to stop here. <laughs> and, and, and what about what about tips? Because you have a very interesting background. Uh, mm -hmm. I believe you have an MBA, uh, and you also uh, you also taught yourself how to. Well, you went to school to learn how to code and so on, so you know how to do that. That's that's a, that's a very potent conversation uh, uh, combination that allows you to do the kind of deep dive that you've done. So, in terms of tips that you can pass along to uh, people who might want to do similar work, uh, what mm -hmm. would they be? Yeah, I have, I I have tips on both career switcher and like investigative work. I can start with the um, uh, the the career switching one. Uh, I think my first tip is starting if you want to learn a new skill or you or even you want to change your career, um, start with the the cheaper options first. Start with something that you don't need to pay money for. There are a lot of things available online, uh, resources. There's scholarships. Uh, there, there's um, like all this kind of programs you, you need to do your homework. So don't feel like if I want to uh, change my career, I need to enroll in a, a master program or something like that. Um, so try the cheaper option first. But there's a second part of this tip. Like if you find yourself not making progress or you, you are not disciplined to sit down to learn something, pay down some money for some like offline uh, course, face-to-face -face course, not online, to face-to-face course, um, and uh, immerse yourself in a group of people that are like heading to the same goal and, and do some projects together. Uh, that will take you to um, where you want to go. Um, the, the, the second one is um, be, be patient. Um, I struggled a little bit like during when I just joined the Globe. Uh, this is my first newsroom experience. So it, it took some time to navigate, to find how does this organization work, how to connect with people. And if you, sh you focus on the short term, 
all the obstacles look so big. But if you, you, you focus on long term, these obstacles will be, become smaller. So I would say like, don't, people uh, tend to underestimate how, how much you can uh, achieve in, in five years, in three years, but uh, overestimate like how much you can achieve in, in several months or year. So I would say like, be patient about yourself. Uh, a lot of skills, um, like or a lot of work just takes time like investigation work like it takes years it takes a month so it, it, it's very common that um, um yeah um and i also want to uh anchor um grant's question about a uh, great tip about like focusing on starting with the basic questions starting with the simple questions because uh especially during my early projects I'm very easily being attracted by like those very exciting, uh, intriguing questions at once. Like, I, like for example, I was working on an investigative piece on uh, abandoned oil wells in, in the Western Canada. And I was so excited about like, oh, what's the transitions between the companies? Like oh, this suspicious things happening. Uh, but when editor asking me like, oh, so what's the, how many wells are we talking about? Like, what's the uh, distribution by status of these wells? Uh, I, I didn't know, but those are the basic questions to help you understand and, and have the big picture about what's going on. So that's some lesson, lessons I learned along the way that um, start with the basic ones and that they will take you to the more complexing, uh, complex questions. Um, uh, and uh, my last tip is um, uh, when you, uh, I think like uh, Grant also mentioned like being open-minded uh, uh, and I have another tip about like it being more specific, not like interviewing people. It's more about collaborations within with other people or within organizations. Um, it's better to give options than open-ended questions. Say you tell someone, uh, your editor can do I should I do A or B but don't say what should I do you give them some options and it will make other parties work easier and also give you some control about the work you want to do because you make the option A and option B so if you give open question the other party will feel like you you not do any homework and if they give you something that out of control you had to take you have to take it so yes that's the four tips for, uh, four tips for me okay great great and Tom, uh, uh, what can you say about Tom? He's, uh, he's done some amazing work, uh, the uh, overall CAJ winner for investigative project. Uh, you've looked at racism within uh, the penitentiary system. You looked at some of the interesting ways that companies were taking advantage of wage subsidies using, again, a database that a lot of us had kind of looked at online, but never really went beyond that. Um, and, and, and I could go on, but the, the, so so talk a little bit about about uh, some of the work that, you, that you've done, and and then we can go from there. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm a. My name's Tom. I'm an investigative journalist with the Globe and Mail. I'm on the same the same group as Grant, and I used to work as Chen said with uh, Chen and those folks. So uh, my I guess my approach, you could say, has always been a little bit more uh, interdisciplinary, to use an academic word. Uh, you know, I tend to combine uh, the, the, the style of work that Grant engages in with the style of work that Chen engages in, I would say. So it's a little bit of, you know, data encoding and whatever, and a little bit of, you know, source development, uh, digging up documents, talking to people, and kind of mashing those two together as best as, <laughs> as, best as I can. Um, I think uh, 
a story that, you know, exemplifies that pretty well is a, a project that, you know, I always hate using the P word. <laughs> it makes it sound bigger than it is. Uh, it's a story that I began working on uh, back in, oh gosh, 20, 2019, 2018. Um, uh, this was following the, there were a couple of very high profile trials in Canada at the time. There was the Gerald Stanley trial, as well as the Raymond Cormier trial. Uh, and uh, both of those led to acquittals. And in both cases, uh, there had been a fair bit of media coverage about the jury uh, and the racial composition of the jury. There were questions raised about whether, you know, an, an almost entirely white jury or wholly white jury uh, was capable of understanding some of the nuance that was being discussed in those cases. Uh, and so, you know, to Grant's point about asking a simple question, at the time I wondered, well, I wonder what the racial composition of juries is in this country. Are they often white? Are they something else? What are their backgrounds? You know, even beyond race, uh, you know, social demographics, uh, geography, what have you. Uh, and <laughs> quickly learned uh, it's impossible, basically, to figure that out. No one tracks this stuff for uh, understandable reasons uh, around, you know, privacy and whatnot. But uh, that question morphed a couple of times over into a question about uh, sentencing and the types of people who are getting sentenced and the types of sentences that they're receiving. Um, and uh, from there, you know, I filed, I dropped a freedom of information request in the mail. I use freedom of information requests a lot in my work. Uh, I file an FOI every week if I can, uh, if I have an idea. I think right now I probably have about 40 open. <laughs> Most of them are terribly, terribly late and mm -hmm. well, maybe see them oh, yeah. in a couple of years yeah. if I'm lucky. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, what I got back was this enormous database of uh, data on people who are in pr uh, federal prison, uh, including these odd risk scores that I'd never really considered before. You know, some people were maximum security, some people were minimum security, some people were rated as having a low reintegration potential score or a high reintegration potential score. Uh, and that became the genesis of a of a series of stories uh, that began running last year, late last year on uh, the systemic inequities in the federal prison system. These risk assessments, uh, as it turns out, are extremely important. So you, when you're first admitted to federal prison um, for any charge that's, you know, any sentence of two years or longer, you are going to be run through this battery of tests uh, and parole officers will assign you a, score, a set of scores, including a security designation, maximum security, you're likely going to be in a, in a cell, in a, on a range with other maximum security people. <clears throat> if you uh, get assigned a minimum security rating, you might be living in suite style dorms. You know, you have a lot more freedom of movements. Uh, you might be able to even leave the prison during the day to go to work or whatever. So really, you know, a lot of differences in how these risk scores affect people. And they're quite simple. You know, some of these risk tests are 12 question, multiple choice type forms. Uh, but what I found using, you know, again, the kind of approach that Chen uh, is a master at, uh, it was that these scores, you know, after accounting for age, gender, uh, the severity of the person's offense, um, their criminal history, after accounting for all that stuff, they were effectively biased against Black and Indigenous people, mm. you know, uh, their race alone had an impact. Uh, and that's really not how the system is supposed to work at all. So, uh, you know, that led to a whole whack of stories, uh, in part because it's a really complex topic and not one that I really 
understood before I filed when I dropped that FOI in the mail. It was uh, really, uh, I was <laughs> interested in looking at something completely different. Uh, and I find that that's often defined some of my work is taking these sharp left or right turns along the way. Uh, I don't think I've worked on a single story where I ended up where I thought I would uh, at the at the outset. You know, the question, you let the question lead you and it takes you wherever it does. And so, you know, that story on the wage subsidy that you mentioned earlier that we did earlier this year, mm-hmm. that uh, turned out to be something very different than what we thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, in part, it was a story about, you know, why is the government not publishing how much each company has received in wage subsidies? They still haven't to this day. No, nope, they don't. Uh, yeah. You know, the story about prisons began as a thing about juries, which I never did anything with. <laughs> so uh, I find that, you know, being flexible in that way and being limber, uh, journalistically speaking, has been really useful. Mm-hmm. So what about tips? Yeah, I'll uh, fly through these because I'm sure we have a, a bunch mm-hmm. of questions pouring in from people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one, I'd just like to echo what Grant was saying, you know, file freedom of information requests. Uh, they are an amazing source of knowledge and inspiration you know sometimes i'll file stuff that i'm just i don't i don't even really you know i don't i don't know what i'm going to get i'm just curious uh, a great example of this and perhaps a little bit apocryphal i don't know i filed a request a year and a half ago about ufos i was curious you know is the canadian government seeing a lot of these things there's been stuff in the new york times about ufos what's going on uh, and <laughs> I only got a few pages back, which is kind of what I expected. I'm kind of glad it wasn't, you know, an enormous tome because I don't think I would have had the patience to read through all of it. But uh, that led to, you know, a fun st- uh, story over the holidays last year about some of the weirder things that uh, people in the armed forces see uh, in the dead of night. You know, uh, things that are hard to explain. They're probably planets or stars <laughs> or mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> meteors, who care, whatever. But, uh, you know, still a, a fun thing to kind of look into. And of course, you know, most of the FOIs I file are a lot more serious than that. Mm-hmm. But uh, filing FOIs, huge, you can only benefit from uh, doing that kind of work and stretching that kind of muscle, especially given that FOIs are so broken in this country right now, as Renata was mentioning earlier, you know, it's a access to information is a real problem. Uh, and, you know, look no further than the current, you know, law in BC that is, mm-hmm. uh, some people are concerned is going to restrict access to uh, government public information. So file FOIs. Number two, really, really quickly, uh, I would say, you know, pick up the phone. Uh, it's uh, something that I can never do too much of. I think I probably drive uh, my partner and my neighbors nuts uh, with the amount of t- time I spend on the phone every single day, uh, especially when I'm working on something of investigative nature. I'm calling a new person or a couple of new people a day and just introducing myself and you know, awkwardly trying to figure out, okay, is this person going to be willing to talk to me? <laughs> What's their vibe like? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can only, again, benefit from talking to people and trying to build out your network as much as possible. Uh, and some stories, you know, it's not unusual for investigative reporters to have over 100 people that they've contacted by the end, many of whom become really reliable sources. Uh, number three, you know, I, I don't think uh, all investigative work has to take years. <laughs> Uh, Chen's work has taken years in the past, uh, and that's because she tackles a, you know, a kind of scope of, of storytelling that just is impossible to do on a short timeline. Uh, and I've done a little bit of the short stuff and the long stuff, but uh, there's no reason why an investigative project can't take a month or less. 
again, I use the P word, didn't mean to do that. Uh, there's no reason why you can't dig into something, become an expert on it and produce a story within a couple of weeks or a month. Uh, finally, or you know, third, really quickly is, uh, or fourth, uh, this is a, I think this is a, often a, a question that people have about investigative work is, you know, well, you know, the story you wrote about the wage subsidy or about the, uh, the global public health information network or about oil wells, you guys are experts on this stuff. We weren't at the beginning. As Grant said, you know, we, he didn't know anything about GFIN until he had to. I didn't know anything about prison risk scores until I had to. So I think a defining trait of a good investigative journalist is the ability to uh, become an expert on something really quickly and go from zero to, you know, being able to have a knowledgeable, deep conversation with a source very quickly and being able to absorb that information. So there has to be kind of a voraciousness to your, you know, hunger for <laughs> research and knowledge and asking stupid questions, which is basically my entire job is saying, well, is, it, is that really, like, how does this work? You know, I don't really understand this really basic concept in your field. Uh, and so, yeah, just say, you know, don't feel like you need to know anything about the thing that you'd like to look into. In fact, it's kind of fun to not know anything. I didn't know anything about the wage subsidy. Chen is not an, she has 14 degrees, but I don't think any of those are in oil exploration or, you know, <laughs> drilling or whatever. Uh, and finally, you know, uh, in the minute that I have left here, just uh, I would say consider impact in all of your work. Uh, that's something that the globe has really drilled into us over the last few years is when we work on an investigative story, I almost use the P word again, uh, I try to always think about the impact that that story could have. You know, who is meant to be reading the story? Who is this, what is the impact that we expect, you know, these revelations to have? And we try to work backwards from there to a certain extent. So that's not to say that we're trying to steer, you know, the direction of the response or anything like that. Absolutely not. But we are thinking about things in terms of, you know, okay, if there's an injustice, we would like to expose it in such a way that it can, that it can be fixed, that the government can go and address it and figure out what has to be done. Uh, if there are oil wells that are being ignored in Alberta, then someone has to look into that, right? So we, uh, as much as possible, we try to think about impact from day one, from the very first day where we're posing that question that Grant so eloquently put earlier. Okay, that, that's great, and and I'm really glad that um, that that you talked about the fact that you know investigations don't have to take months and months and years and years. I mean, I've, I've worked on investigations that have taken that long, and I've worked on other investigations that you've been able to do in a few months because I think that what we don't want to do is to intimidate people for people to say, well, geez, we we don't have that time or whatever. You you know, the key is that you use some of these techniques to take a deep dive. Right. Yeah. And then you go from there. So yeah. I, I'm glad that you I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up, because that's a that's a really important point, I think, for anyone looking to do this kind of meaningful work. Now, we do have some questions, so I want to uh, put them to you right away here. Um, and the the first question I have is, is from uh, Natasha Belowski. And this I, I, I guess I can throw it out to all of you. What is the most logistically challenging part of your jobs as investigative reporters? Grant, why don't you start? I'll go first. Um, I didn't think about that for a second because there's yeah, many. I know. Um, I gave you guys time to think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what it is? It's it's information management. It's uh, and this goes right through. Like I find this this forms a big chunk of any investigation is as you've got things coming in, documents, 
your you know your access to information requests are coming back. You've got your interviews, your transcripts. You know, Tom talked about you know talking to many people. Um, you know, I think you know for the for the the public health stuff that I wrote last year, um, easily talked to more than fifty. I'm sure the number is you know much higher. Not all of those people are making it into the story, but you you're using information from everybody and from all the documents and. And so, you know, cataloging that and and determining what's most relevant and what uh, what's going to go where and what you need to follow up on and get more information on that to me is always the biggest challenge because you know, you know, if you know an, if, uh, an investigation is going well, then all of a sudden you know you're you're a couple weeks in and the, the papers stacking up around you, you know, um, that's usually a good sign. And w one of the things I I usually think about when I'm doing my second draft, which is usually when you're just cutting things out. Like, you know, you know, if I'm writing a 5,000 word piece, if I've got 10,000 words before I do my final draft, um, that tells me I'm leaving a lot on the cutting room floor and that's good. And so getting to that point where you know, you've, you've got, you've cataloged all the information, you've managed it and you've got the best stuff for the final draft. I think that's always the biggest challenge. And I spent a lot of time on that. Okay. Jen. Yeah. Um, I can, I want to answer the question from my perspective as a um, more like a su supporting role in investigation, uh, because I think the angle is a little bit different. Uh, and the difficult a lot of time to me is to stay focused and, and to understand the, the, the question we're to answer and we are trying to answer because I, I get involved in project at different stages, sometimes very early stage and reporters either don't even know like what we are trying to do here. So it's really easy to, 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 to lose the focus and, and, and dig into some rabbit holes. And a lot of people, a lot of times people approach you uh, without having those angles. So you need to figure out what, where to focus. And also one thing I want to mention is, especially during that early stage, uh, as a supporting role, you don't need to feel like you are responsible for the story already, or you want to impress them with some big ideas. Um, they come to you just to uh, want to hear your knowledge or want to hear your opinions. So just to say, what do you think, what you already know? And over time, those thoughts will connect and will lead you to the big story. And, that, and by that time, we will enter the next stage to work uh, very closely on this big story. But like before that, um, the difficulty will be like just to keep talking to reporters, keep talking to editors, and also like have your, your own opinions uh, along the way. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Uh, well, <laughs> I feel like Grant and Chen have stolen all the, all the good answers, but I'll say that uh, uh, one thing that goes, that, you know, always goes unconsidered, at least by me until it's happening is, you know, once you filed and you enter that negotiation phase with your editors about, you know, what goes in, what comes out, uh, when should this run, what kind of, you know, presentation are we going to work on for this or whatever, uh, that stuff can be very logistically challenging because you're, you're not, no longer talking about, you know, what is the story, but you're talking about how do we refine what the story is to a sharp point, right? Uh, and sometimes that means dropping a bunch of uh, information or anecdotes, uh, as Grant mentioned, or, uh, you know, it might mean rethinking what the format is, right? Like, uh, rewriting the story entirely once you've written it once, because you've, 
wrote it the first time and realized, oh, you know, here's 14 holes in the story. I have to go find someone who fits this profile because I have to talk to, you know, a parole officer or I have to go talk to a uh, oil wells inspector or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's that kind of stuff really only becomes clear once you filed. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, it's a weird process where you're almost, you know, in some cases reinvestigating the topic (laughs) for a Mm -hmm. second time once you've written your first draft and realized uh, realized what you currently have. It's very hard to, you know, at least for me, I don't have any idea how strong the story is or uh, what the gaps might be until I write it down. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes clear. So yeah. I find that that can be a pretty intense experience. Which is, which is why, you know, you, you have to write many drafts because it's in the, in the writing of the repeated drafts that you see holes in the story that yeah. you think, oh, geez, I got to go back and, and, and fill this, plug this hole, right? And, and assembling your thoughts too. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't assemble my thoughts until I write because uh, I don't actually know what structure my thoughts should take. They're all just this amorphous blob in my mind yeah. until that moment comes comes yeah. to be. Grant, you were just going to jump in with a, with a comment there? About oh, no, I, I think you're exactly right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you, uh, that's really when the holes start to emerge, I, I find. When, when you do your first draft, I often do my my first draft just to see what holes are there um, because you know, they're going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. I find that if if you're unsure about your story, it's a great way to go. Write a a terrible draft. That's only for yourself Mm -hmm. and it'll become very obvious. Okay. (laughs) Well, I have to, I have to really understand this thing and I don't really get it right now or whatever. Okay. All right. Uh, My second question is from Catherine Burr. It's a multi-part question, but I'm going to go with the last question. Um, What do you predict will be trending in the next few years. And in terms of trending, I think she's meaning like what kind of topics, like what should be on our collective radar as, as journalists, as investigative journalists? Who wants to take a first crack at that? I'll go. I'll okay, go in. ahead. Uh, well, I think uh, the story of the century of, of our lives, uh, perhaps of the end of our lives is climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I can't imagine that people aren't going to start to turn some of these investigative tools towards that kind of storytelling and that kind of reporting. It's something that we're going to see a lot more of as we bring in restrictions around emissions and as we start to really police this stuff. Uh, there was a, a great uh, piece in the New York Times a year or two ago talking about, you know, unregulated methane emissions, and they used these special cameras to look for, you know, plumes of methane being emitted uh, without a license or what have you, mm-hmm. I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of that because it's going to be so hard to keep track of what's actually going on. And uh, with, again, you know, carbon pricing put in and uh, much tighter environmental controls, we're going to start seeing a lot of malfeasance, a lot of people skirting the rules, uh, and a lot of gaps in the regulatory system itself. So uh, I would imagine that we're going to start seeing a lot of really powerful reporting on that stuff. I mean, we already have a lot, Mm -hmm. but, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not something that I've personally ever explored and I would love to at some point. And maybe that will get some momentum, added momentum coming out of COP26. I mean, we don't know. I guess we'll have to see. Um, Chen, what do you think? Yeah. um, So my, it it could be a a reporting uh, perspective, but also like about data per se is about data transparency and data gap. Like we did uh, a project on data gap and Mm -hmm. also um, like it is also a big 
part of our uh, Power Gap project that we get a lot of questions, like, did you analyze, uh, say, transgen uh, transgender group of people? Did you do visualize the uh, men and women? And uh, we, we like, if you're familiar with the, um, the project, we did some of that uh, for the top one percentile. But like, because of uh, the availability of the data, we we only able to do that for the top one percentile people. So mm -hmm. I feel like the government um, should put more resources to to make this available. And I think there's a, a change of mindset as well, like from uh, afraid of violating people's um, uh, privacy to a mindset of how can we uh, like sh collect and share data better without violating privacy. And mm -hmm. I think there is a story this morning from my my colleague, uh, yep. Jeff Keller, about, yeah, so like it's also hurting how we handle the, the pandemic as well. Like um, like the federal and, and the provincial government should have set standards to, to um, uh, standardize for the data collection and, and the sharing. And now a lot of departments are in those silos. They collect in their own data, but like it cannot be merged. It's, it's all different across departments. It caused a lot of problems for, for our work. And, and as, as we mentioned, and we were talking about like how to what's the definition of investigation it, it, it doesn't need to be long but our project that took such a long time because it took months to collect the data then took months to clean the data if yeah. the government can do their part to make our life easier i guess this could be much shorter and i can move on to another project i, I guess well um, as you mentioned you know i mean that that that, that story was in, in your paper this morning and, and and i couldn't help thinking that you know maybe some of the stories that we should be doing is this is what we can't tell you this is what we would love to tell you but this is what we can't tell you because governments aren't sharing, they're not maintaining their data, uh, they, they, they're just not putting enough work into this. Uh, and, and, and I think as journalists collectively, we've always been a little shy about telling people what we don't know or what we can't tell them. And I, and I think that maybe we have to get, we have to get over that. Uh, Grant. Um, this is a really good question. Uh, I'm going to answer it slightly differently in that I don't think a lot about where trends are going and what they're going to be. And, and the reason for that is... The fundamental questions of investigative reporting uh, and journalism writ large, but really investigative reporting, really are always the same. It's always the same questions, no matter what the actual story is. And what I mean by that is, you know, sort of I, I spent, you know, 10 to 15 years as a business reporter. I've got a lot of background in business reporting. And, you know, every time you see a stock market um, fraud, um, every time you see that sort of white collar um, crime going on or just stock fraud, it's it's always a different flavor, but it's always the same fundamental question, and it always occurs in a hot market. So, you know, in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, we had the tech boom, and, and then we had a lot of tech fraud come out of that, a lot of stock problems come out of that in the markets. Well, then, you know, later on in, in the same decade, we had you know, different flavors of that. And, you know, so one thing when I talk about business reporting, I say, you know, in a hot market, you're going to see stock fraud going on um, because that's where it flourishes. The question's always the same. The trend is different. Like if you were to ask me, you know, three years from now, what's going to be the the, the trend in, 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 in stock fraud? I don't know, but it's, it's going to be there and you'll look, you'll see it in the hot market. So I don't worry too much about trends. The, the question of where's the money going that's always a question with governments. 
you know, what's going to be the government spending scandal four years from now? I don't know, but there will be one. And the question will always be, where's the money going and how's it being spent? And is that appropriate? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I sort of, you know, the trends will come to us. We just have to be watching for them. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Let's go follow the money, uh, which is uh, yeah. just become a mantra, but one that cannot be repeated um, often enough. Okay. That's good. Um, we are sadly uh, running out of time. So I think we can squeeze in a couple of more questions uh, before <laughs> we end. So here's here's one. How do you decide which stories? This is from Jay Callahan, by the way. How do you decide which stories to pursue? Do your own life experiences influence those choices, for instance? So who wants to take a crack at that one? I'll go first real quick. Okay. Um, and then pass it on. I, my answer is really quick. I, what really interests me and, uh, and some very uh, colleagues that I've looked up to over the years, somebody had a good, good uh, saying once, what, what upsets you? What gets you, you know, what angers you? Mm-hmm. Because that's usually an injustice. And, you know, looking back at the pandemic coverage, you know, yes, there's a responsibility as a journalist. But when you look at certain things going on and bad decisions being made and people dying because of it, you know, I, I have to admit, it's, it's tough not to get upset about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Tom? Uh, I think I'll, I'll give the one word answer uh, that is just, I think, encapsulates what Grant just said gut. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just go with my gut. Uh, you, I've One thing I've learned is to trust my gut in mm-hmm. a lot of my work. If something doesn't sound right or someone, you know, if something suspicious seems like it's going on uh, or if I just get a, a weird vibe, I, I tend to scratch at that, you mm-hmm. know, itch, uh, if you will, or trust, trust my gut wherever it takes me. So, uh, yeah, I just, I don't really know it until I see it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Jen? Well, um, I sometimes take inspiration from other people's work. So when I see something, this is more like a data or visual wise. When I see something and I, I will like, oh, I, I hope that I can do that as well. Um, so circle back to like what we want to see the trends. I hope that more people will do methodologies mm-hmm. <laughs> from a data journalist perspective. How did you do it? Share like what kind of obstacles you have, like the conversation we are having today. Is mm-hmm. there a way for me to, to duplicate your work and learn something then I can build on top of that? Um, so that that's kind of things. I love, I read some project. Oh, like this is so awesome. I hope that I can, I can do it as well. I, wa- I hope that I can do this visualization as well. Um, so that's something inspire me. Okay. I want to pivot from that just to put a very last question to you, which is sort of, um, emer- it's a question that emerges from a lot of the other questions that we unfortunately can't get to, and that is obstacles. So if you had to think about, there are many obstacles that you encounter all the time, but what would be a key one that, 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 you, that you either consistently um, encounter or have encountered recently and, and, and figured out ways to get around? Um, I who wants can. to... I can Jen, do you want to keep going? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I will say <laughs> it's hard to decide um, if you want to start big or you if you start small. Like for our Power Gap project, um, we did this pilot analysis because it would take so much resources if you go really big and reach everyone. Um, and uh, but if you <laughs> if you only reach a hundred of them, like, you know, it will take a month to, to have them to respond to you. So you, you need to find that sweet spot 
that you you reach enough people, but like don't uh, like overwhelm your resources. So um, so I think it, it, it's also case by case. For this one, we, we use this, this pilot analysis to test on several provinces, and if the hypothesis true, like let's expand it to more sectors. But that was also a, a period of time that we realized some organizations they they don't have enough people to conduct this analysis. It's just not statistically robust so we had to scale back a little bit so initially we want to do all municipalities in this in this country then we find oh some municipalities just like they don't have enough people make that benchmark so let's let's just um, leave them we, we wanted to to like include as many entities as possible so we need to like come up some methodology to do it statistically right but I just found it very difficult to, to understand where is that sweet spot like at the very beginning. Yeah. Okay. Brent? Um, there, I'll mention two big obstacles real quick. Uh, one comes at the beginning, one comes at the end. Uh, the biggest obstacle that comes at the beginning is people stop talking. And to me, that's when investigative reporting begins. It's when people stop talking. That's, mm -hmm. when, that's when you know. And uh, that's when you know you've started an investigation. And then at the end, I find with every really good investigation, and I know all my colleagues face it, it's the spin and the misinformation that comes out afterwards. Um, how, uh, how you know, people will try to tell you that, uh, well, that didn't really happen. And, you know, so you, you make sure you've done enough work uh, on the front end to, uh, to prepare for the inevitable blowback you're going to get. And then... And then and then work through that because you know companies will say that you know they didn't do anything wrong when they have done something wrong. Um, governments will say the same thing. And uh, your job as an investigative reporter is to you know double down and not let them get away with that if if that's their uh, approach after the story comes out. Okay, great, Tom. Yeah, uh, thirty seconds. Uh, I think the government uh, at, often becomes its own biggest obstacle and. Honestly, I think often uh, the successes and the stories that investigative journalists in this country produce are in spite of the government, not because of it, not because of an access to information uh, or access to resources, but in, in spite of a lack of those things. Uh, the best example of this would be a story that the Global Mail just ran uh, last weekend, no, the weekend before last, about uh, Champlain Towers, the condos in Surfside in Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, drastic difference in the kinds of records that reporters could access in, uh, through like a website for Florida's you know, corporations register compared to in Canada where they had to pay $4,000 almost to access uh, all sorts of records that are available at your fingertips in the US, court records, you name it. So uh, really you know, that access, which is only getting worse over time, I think is probably one of the biggest obstacles that I face on a daily basis. Okay. Unfortunately, that's about it uh, for our great discussion. So thanks, Tom, Grant, and Chen. We've learned a lot from your insights and experiences. And thanks to all of you for joining us and submitting your questions. Wish we could have gotten to more of them. But um, yeah, there's just too much good stuff to, uh, to talk about. So this concludes the fall 2021 JTalks season. A reminder that you can find videos and podcasts of past talks on the CJF site. Uh, the CJF will return to the virtual stage in February 2022 with a new JTalks live season. So to stay up to date on CJF events, please 
sign up for the newsletter or follow the Canadian Journalism Foundation on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks everyone for watching. Be safe, and we hope to talk to you soon.